0: Welcome, everybody. To the latest episode of Bound in Context. I'm Rand Straven. Today, I have with me uh, Jay Schneid. Welcome, Jay.
1: Hi, how are you?
0: Good. Jay's the director of product uh, for the Secure DevOps platforms at Liberty Mutual and coming to us from her lovely shed in her backyard in Pennsylvania. Yep. So, uh, tell our audience a bit about yourself.
1: Sure. Um, so, I've been at Liberty um, coming into my 16th year which I never really thought I'd say that um, given, you know, coming out of college and working for a number of dot coms in Boston um, had worked for about eight of them that have all gone out of business at this point. And actually by 2001, they were all out of business. And so, you know, jumped around a lot, but learned a lot about product, about marketing, about, um, you know, how do you build relationships with customers? How do you get feedback from customers? How do you better understand, um, the perspectives that, you know, you want to share one as a, as a product person, but then also, you know, how do you listen to your customer and make, you know, everything that you want to do focus on them. Um, so I don't, I don't regret it at all. It was, I mean, it was a tough time, but you know, when you're young, I guess that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, but came to Liberty, um, in 2015 and it's been really great. I'm sorry, 2000, I came to Liberty in 2005. Um, okay. and it's been great ever since.
0: Well, awesome. So, so you have this really sort of product background, but yet you work on some kind of a technical kind of a DevOps sort of, sort of platform. Yeah. So so what sorts of work do you, you and your team do? What kind of problems do you tend to solve?
1: Sure. So we really focus on the developer experience at Liberty Mutual. So how do we enable developers to consume the services that they need to deploy into the cloud? But really, and make it easier for them, because really what we want our developers focusing on are, you know, the business problems that we need to solve. How do we make it easier for our policyholders to quote and bind? How do we make it easier um, to submit a claim? You know, that's really, you know, when when you talk about developer experience, we don't do a good job sometimes as tying back to really what we're enabling. It's, yes, making it easier for the developer, but it's really about making it easier for our policyholders by enabling that developer to spend more time on business value um, and what they're doing. So our team really focuses on tying together um, anything from the findability of what's available at Liberty Mutual to consume. So whether or not it's Cloud Foundry or Kubernetes, or you're looking to be API first, so what tools do we have to make that possible? Um, how do we enable serverless at Liberty Mutual? All the way to which cloud do you want to, you know, deploy onto? Um, and what services in that cloud can you consume based on, you know, the security controls that we need to put in place? Um, that's what our team focuses on, and it's really about, you know, making that. I found what I want to do. I need to consume a pipeline to get there, and then I need to deploy.
0: So, so it's an interesting thing we've been hearing our guests and I've seen as a big focus on developer productivity across organizations. What's you know, but it's it's sometimes kind of a nebulous thing, yeah. if you will, right? And so, yeah. what's your what's your approach, and how do you go about taking something that's kind of fuzzy, maybe, mm-hmm. and getting it sort of down to be a bit more clear?
1: Yeah, no, that's a that's a really great question because I think you know we've been doing this probably about really five years really focused on the developer experience as a, as a consumable entity, if you will, you know, and it really started with, well, in order for us to build a server and well to rack that server, to plug it into the network, to then build on it, and then request access to it, to then deploy, you know, something to it through a war file or an EAR file, you know, we took that initial, you know, journey, if you will, and was able to say, "Gosh, that could be anywhere from two months to six months for our developers to finally get access to it." So as we started to, you know, break that down, we were able to get it down to two weeks, and then we were able to get it down to, you know, one week. And now, you know, within minutes, we can have a new developer at Liberty Mutual um, have access to the tools and be able to deploy into production in a single day. Um, so it's really about, you know, measuring that productivity, right? And knowing all of the steps that, you know, that developer needs to, to get to. Um, and where we've been able to go, you know, through the maturity of this process is now it's not just about deploying an application. It's also about what messaging services do you need? What databases do you need to consume? And all of those, you know, other pieces and parts that make up an application.
0: Yeah. And so when you sort of help folks dig in, how do you... I mean, you've gone from months yeah. to weeks to, to sort, of, sort of days. As you go through there, I'm assuming a lot of that has been the benefit of cloud technology and the ability to sort of yeah. lay out that environments. How is it, uh, how is the developer's experience adjusted? Because, you know, back in my career and I was in, 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 I've been doing this for a long time. Yeah, you basically got hardware involved and figure out oh, that's gonna take two or three months. Like, they'll, they'll get going. Just give me yeah. a big enough machine at some point. And the other thing you used to do up front as architecture is you spend a lot of time capacity planning yeah. because to put that hardware order and you had to really understand your volumes in these days. And that's just it's kind of gone by the the, the, way, the wayside a bit. But if you accelerate that cycle and now they can do it much quicker, what have you noticed in the, either the trade-offs or the difference in the behaviors or the different knowledge that that drives an engineer today versus a baby, you know, 10 years or so ago?
1: Yeah, great. Um, We are asking a lot more of our developers at this point, right? Like they were, they used to be able to just focus on the application that they were building, the language that they were using, and then wrapping it up into a file that then assist admin would deploy on their behalf. Now we're asking them to do all of those pieces, understand pipelines, understand, you know, the build process, understand a deploy process. And then as we start to, you know, those add-ons that make an application an application, we have Java developers now that need to know enough about a database to be able to deploy that as well for them. So, you know, we couldn't have done this without the evolution of the developer and engineer at Liberty and what they're willing to take on and what they want to be able to understand about the whole picture of an application versus the smaller pieces or parts that they used to focus on before.
0: Yeah, we, we're seeing that trend as well. You know, more of the instead of the dev and the ops, you're getting to sort of these design build run teams, like longer yep. live teams who have to now co- accommodate things like um, maintenance and uh, alerts and on car. Are you guys seeing a similar evolution to, to putting more of the full life cycle of the application under sort of um, development teams?
1: Absolutely. You build it, you own it. And what's interesting too is as we start to, you know, we've we've gone back and forth about, you know, how much does somebody really want to own we're starting to see now is like well you can't take that away from me you know if i'm going to be responsible i want to be responsible and these teams are you know demanding might be a strong word but are really saying nope we're gonna we're gonna take it all on our own and we want to be you know a part of that that full experience for our our customers that consume Mm -hmm. that application
0: when you think about the platforms your teams build out, like a, certainly a large organization like Liberty probably has you know, thousands of developers, lots of applications. What are yeah. some of the challenges with designing and building a platform that kind of serves every body's needs? I see yeah. this is another constant uh, challenge with organizations. Is you know on the one hand you don't want ten of these platforms sprouting up all right. the organization, but the challenge is with having one means it has to serve everybody's needs. Can you yeah. talk to us about, about how you go about sort of solving that type of problem
1: yeah definitely you know we look at the different components and parts of what it's going to take to manage and run that application so there's a cost component of it like how much is the business willing to spend to run that application out in AWS natively or kubernetes or within Cloud Foundry um, and making sure that that information is available um, to the developers and to you know the managers that need to make those decisions. Um, Security has probably been one of the biggest, in my opinion, success stories that we've had is we've partnered with our security teams from the get-go with a lot of these applications or platforms. And, you know, we don't make a lot of changes without them being involved. Um, And we've partnered with things, for example, in AWS, we offer a service called Radar that we've built um, ourselves. And what that does is enable compliance from the get-go. And so we're enforcing security policy through the process, but also providing that trust and that that um, that opportunity for our customers to say, I know if I leverage AWS, I'm going to be secure because a, a lot of those policies have already been enforced through the process of deployment or build. And so for us, it's really been about the confidence that developers need to have or even our business needs to have that the cloud isn't going to be um, something that's a wild west, you know, and we're, we're putting we're putting the, the right compliance in place. So you're really getting built in compliance as opposed to um, something that you need to build yourself.
0: Yeah. And as, as security continues to shift left, and that's a perfect sort of you yeah. know analogy. I learned in my career, man, if you get security involved late in the game, it's, it's yeah they're going to basically say no um, yeah. and, and for other sort of reasons. Right. Yeah. So get involved um, early and in exactly what you mentioned. The more that we can codify these security policies, yeah. have a way to automate it, not just try to remember to tell everybody to remember to do this. Right. But I think long-term that makes the security team more effective and, right. and it means that you can get a win-win. It doesn't, it's not a trade off between secure and, and engineering right. experience or secure and, and speed. When done right, it can be sort of a benefit, right?
1: And it, and it starts to make even compliance easier, right? So if mm-hmm. we know that teams are leveraging certain patterns that we've provided, it's a lot easier to go through attestation, because if they're using certain patterns, we know that it's secure and we don't have to investigate and interrogate every single piece. We have you know, confidence that as long as they're maintaining that application or instance, then we're good to go.
0: Yeah. So, what are some of those key lessons? I mean, you, you you've been at Liberty a, a while and helping a team see this transformation. What are those key lessons that you sort of picked up that you think would be good to
1: yeah. Be share? Yeah. Yeah. So, definitely getting security um, involved early enough. and often, like you had mentioned. Um, when we first brought AWS in, um, we had security at the table, and while frustrating a little bit um, because you know they were identifying things we certainly didn't think about, um, it made the transition a lot easier we've also invested heavily in ux and so that may seem weird because we're a you know for developers by developers if you will group um but that experience that they have is just as important as the experience our policy holders have to manage you know their account or their policy and so you know we have ux embedded in our teams Uh, we have a strategist that works with me to look at the entire end-to-end process of the developer experience and help us identify opportunities of where we can get better. Uh, We have a content strategist that's working with us to help kind of change from a knowledge base, go find the right content that you need to a contextually relevant process where we're bringing forward um, knowledge within the process that a developer is going through. Um, it's a really, really great opportunity for our customers and, you know, our developers to experience our tools in a way that, you know, doesn't cause a lot of um, stumbling blocks, or at least that's our intent, right? And when yeah. we do face a, a stumbling block, you know, we're, we're, we're right up in there um, working with them to help resolve that.
0: So it sounds like you're really investing in some of the experience of your, your developers by putting them center of sort of your 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 solutions here absolutely absolutely what are some of the topics so you guys have made a lot of progress what are those topics that are sort of top of mind for you these days i mean where do you see you guys going you know this year and next year
1: yeah good question um the investment around knowledge is something that we continue to have conversations about Um, and and where does that knowledge exist how do we manage that knowledge and how do we find it, right? So the findability of knowledge is really top of mind right now. Um, we have a lot of different tools that we leverage. We have a lot of different places people can go to get answers and ask questions, um, but how do we really put that in the context of the experience of the developer so that you know when they need to ask a question, they can where they are rather than having to know the four or five different places that we you know, maintain knowledge. Um, you know, the other thing that's really big for us right now is around reuse. So we've introduced, um, a new site called what we're calling marketplace. And that's really the opportunity for our customers. Um, and when I say customers, I mean, our, our partner d- development teams, um, they offer a lot back to the community. And so how do we build a location where they can go and make the work that they do consumable? You know, and then how do people find that? So we really invested in that idea of reuse and the ability to provide more community sponsored um, tools and instances that can be consumed by not just a single market, but the entire enterprise. You know, and that's been that's been really exciting because, you know, we did it in a way that wasn't just about giving people a place to put things. We enabled them to put things there without our intervention. Right. So really kind of starting with the idea that we don't want to be a blocker for this. We also don't even want to be a um, trying to think of the right word. We don't even want to be like responsible for it from the sense of, you know, we're not going to tell you if it's a good idea. We're not going to you know be a gatekeeper. Um, And so, you know, really, we're going to allow the data to tell us what's valuable out there, what's being consumed, um, and all of that data was built into it as well. So, we know um, what's being downloaded, what's made it into production, how many people have clicked on it, what's being consumed, and, you know, what are our most popular offerings within that space.
0: It's interesting. It sounds very much like an open source or kind of inner source type of sort of program. And I think that that's in my experience in, in large organizations, that's something that's really started to come to fruition in the, in the last roughly five years or so is to realize yeah. that you have so many developers out there that, you, that, you know, nobody knows everything and what's going on. Right. So having a healthy ecosystem where people can create a problem and put it out mm-hmm. there, it sounds like marketplace in your case and, and sort of yeah. say, this is what I'm doing, it right. sort of benefits everybody. And it's like you're working within an open source sort of ecosystem
1: right right and we have so many um so much is learned through tribal knowledge at liberty as well Mm -hmm. because we have so much tenure that you know we need to even the playing field for our developers who are new um the the junior people that we're bringing in but even it's really even difficult for senior developers that are moving between markets you know the processes are different the the content's different the where you go to consume information could be different and so you know, really rallying around what's good at Liberty and what can I reuse is is a really big focus for us right now.
0: You know, on on your sort of journey, who have been some of your influences that sort of guided your, your your thinking and and some of the ideas that you've sort of brought forth?
1: Yeah, um, great question you know, my first and foremost, I guess, just from a, a personality standpoint and, and, encouraging me to be my authentic self would be Punky Brewster. Um, awesome. so if you want to start, like way back when, you know, maybe not necessarily related to the work that I do now, but I do feel like a big part of my personality and the ability to challenge when things need to be challenged, ask tough questions, And, you know, be confident in, you know, what I know and how I do it. That's a lot from like just watching Punky Brewster going up, you know, and then, you know, as we've, you know, matured into, you know, the product person that I am and, you know, where I really want to be. I was actually just telling my team today, um, a girlfriend of mine that I worked with about 18 years ago, just wrote a book called Trustworthy. um, And it's really about building trust and building brands. and how do we make that better? Um, so Margot Bloomstein was a was a big part of you know my voice and the tone that I use and the adjectives I choose. Um, and so you know, just you know peers across my life have been really influential. Um, from a product standpoint, it has to be John Cutler. It's probably one of my favorite Twitter follows. Um, I really love his perspective. I love everything that he brings forward because it has authentic data behind it. You know, he's not just a guy out there, you know, spouting product knowledge. He's bringing forward what he's learned with the work that he does and the teams. And, you know, it's always fun when he's like, oh, I heard this today. How about this one? And I'm just like, oh, wow. Mm Um, You know, but from a technology standpoint, I have to say I've been very fortunate to have some really brilliant architects to partner with, you know, and a lot of this is about how do you balance the problems and hypothesis that you have as a product owner, you know, and what do you hear from your customers with the actual ability to implement from an architecture and technology perspective. And so, you know, we've been really fortunate to, I've had a few that I've worked with for quite a number of years, and um, we've really strike the balance between product, customer support, customer direction, and um, the technology of it all.
0: Well, maybe that's an important theme I I see again. And when we have full stack teams, we'll typically have just like you guys, embedded UX and embedded tech lead. There's always this healthy tension you've observed this the forms between the UX person arguing for the best experience yeah, but the person and the, and the tech leads like but I got to build it and put it in place and so yeah. what I've learned early in my career I'd want to be like okay we gotta get the t- decision and what I learned is finally over time like step back and, and let it sort of wrestle out and usually they'll land it at a good at compromise everybody yeah. gives a little bit talk to me about how you and, and the reason I bring this up is it's part of the, the role I think of the product is to balance and listen to these sort of different kind of competing ideas and then try to get them to work towards synergy. Like how does that play out in some of your teams where you you have folks advocating for the experience and then yeah. folks advocating for the, the the buildability?
1: Yeah, where we really break it down to is like what is the value we can provide in the most, you know, in the shortest sense of time right so you know mvp if you if you want to go there although i do think that word's been destroyed from an interpretation standpoint um but to me it still holds true from the standpoint of what is that smallest part of value we're trying to provide you know and how do you balance the engineer's desire to build something awesome right away you know the uxers perspective of it need to be perfect right away, or trying to even predict all of the different permutations that may come along as, you know, for example, we have 10 offerings, now we have 15, now all of a sudden we have a hundred. Like we can't plan and predict for that. So how do we allow that incremental improvement? And I think what was what was hardest for all of us is to say it's going to change. We know that. Yeah committing to a direction, and then allowing that change to happen when it's appropriate. Um, I think we spent a lot of time early on trying to think about, think too much about the future and trying to predict where we go, rather than saying, let's try something first, learn from it, and then, you know, move on to the next piece.
0: Yeah, I mean, from design thinking, I picked up a bias towards action, is really one of those, you know, like you're, you're not gonna sit around and sort of, pontificate all the different ways like get out there do something right. and try it and I think yeah. that's something else you mentioned I agree with the term MVP it's like the other thing on engineers is like get comfortable with just good enough for something right and that's really a challenge depends on the engineers you work with because I've seen engineers gold plate as much as UX sort of folks yep. advocate it, right and so the the concept is let's invest a little bit let's get just good enough let's get feedback from it and let's follow that to see whether we invest further or we just say you know, that, that's, that's good enough. And yep. that can be tough depends on that. The people who are involved and getting into that. Just good enough.
1: Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, has what, what has kind of maybe marred the just good enough, um, connotation as well is that we've done just good enough and then moved on to something else. Hmm. And all of a sudden just good enough is now our production grade thing that yeah. we, we can't invest in right now because priorities change so quickly. And so, you know, finding that balance of what is good enough for now, committing and um, ensuring that our customers, it meets the customer's needs in a way that doesn't require us to move forward. But then if we are concerned about the opportunities um, or we've brought forward technical debt because we made it just good enough from a customer perspective, but maybe in the back end, we've, we've muckied with some stuff. You know, how do we as product owners acknowledge that and give back to our developers the opportunity to change that and update it as we move forward?
0: When you're getting that feedback from your developers, like what are some of the either the techniques or the research? Like, how do you go about getting that feedback from it? Is it anecdotally or is there a way to like, how do you go about Because you have an internal, entirely, mostly internal audience, of, I mm-hmm. presume. How do yeah. you go about getting that feedback?
1: Yeah, we talk about it a lot as a leadership team about the commitment to technical debt, um, even from a percentage standpoint. So how much time do we want to commit to technical debt in any given sprint or any given increment that we're working on? We also talk about it from the standpoint of when we are story pointing and you know, maybe one of the seniors is thinking about what needs to be touched, if you will, going into this new feature. Is there an opportunity to you know, clean up the campfire is usually what we call it. So incorporating that into our estimates um, as a team and talking openly about that so our product owner knows and is aware of that work that's being anticipated based on um, some technical debt that the, the more senior members of our, our leads, you know, have anticipated awesome um, but we do look at look for them to bring it forward to us and you know we try to balance with everything else going on
0: and, and I I'm, imagine with your teams they have this like you describe the development of new capabilities but there's a there's an operational run yep. aspect of, of what they do too and i imagine if their platforms go down if it's a problem there's a pretty big impact yep. um, across the organization so you're balancing both of those building new capabilities with keeping these platforms which maybe used to be lower but now they're front and center with sort they of the, are front and
1: center. you know yeah. and, and it's interesting because we we learned how front and center they are all the time so you know as we're going through some of our business continuity um you know paper exercises and you know events and things like that during one recent event we found out that a lot of teams are actually keeping their um run books if you will on confluence well We didn't have confluence as something that we were going to bring up right away, (laughs) you know, and so, you know, learning that again, that's why it's so important to talk to our customers about not only, you know, can they consume our products, but what are they consuming them for and to not make assumptions about the consumption of anything at any given time, because as soon as you give a feature to a customer, they're going to use it seven different ways, even if it was never intended that way.
0: Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, as I've seen sort of the internal DevOps and platforms grow over time, they've gone from this, yeah, it'd be nice to to basically all the apps that you have out there in production, no matter what level of resiliency on them, the code flows yes. through these tools to yep. get there. So they have to be just as highly available as your most highly available system. And that's not the something country. it's it's dawned on people over time, but that's not something you okay. use when you start this journey, you start thinking about. Your code right. management platforms and your CLAC platforms and your binary yeah. repositories, all of these systems, your, your confluence, your all of these yeah. systems now have to be very high levels of resiliency and availability for everything else to work.
1: Right. And for us, you know, we think about like, oh, the easy answer is let's go SaaS. Well, some of our, you know, vendors at this point are making SaaS unattainable from a cost perspective. Uh, you know, and we're trying to look at, you know, balancing going, you know, the SaaS model, which seems really easy. To you know, what if we built it ourselves, or what would it take, you know, for us to, to manage that on our own? Um, and I, I we're still trying to figure that out. It's not an easy, you know, quick and easy answer.
0: No, I agree. I mean, because you give up control, right? And yeah. if these are mission critical systems, and you're like, well, my vendor says they're down, Are we that that's a really tough sort of you know right. thing to understand, especially. So, no, I see lots of organizations. Yes, there's a there's a kind of a bias towards SaaS on some respects, but the you got to look at what are you giving up in terms of control and flexibility, and are you willing exactly. to do that? And, right. so, and if
1: we're all running in U.S. East, does it really matter?
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Yeah. when AWS has a hiccup. Uh, exactly,
1: yeah. exactly. Right.
0: So, Well, let's wrap up with maybe uh, the most interesting topic. What are you listening to these days? I'm always curious.
1: Sure. Um, so I will admit to go- going down into a spiral of Taylor Swift as soon as her, oh, okay. first, her second album came out. Um, it felt for me, it was at the exact right time that I needed a little T-Swift in my life because okay. I must have listened to folklore over and over again. Um, and it, it, I don't know, it just kind of hit hit me at the right time during the the pandemic and in quarantining. Um, but now looking, looking at, you know, will we really have Bonnaroo? Will we really have Firefly? I'm a big festival person ever okay. since I went to Woodstock 99. So oh, wow. usually this time of the year, I'm building playlists off of whoever I'm going to go see, you know, at that next festival. So I'm kind of waiting to see, you know, who's who's actually going to tour this year um, and then go from there. You know, I sold back some of my tickets, um, still have, you know, Weezer Green Day, still looking forward to, I think it's ACDC, Death Leopard, and Poison and Joan Jett. So, oh, nice. <laughs> um you know, kind of, you know, it depends on my mood. And if I want to go back to college, do I want to go back to growing up? How far back in classic rock do I go? Um, But I will openly admit to just adoring those Taylor Swift albums when they came out. Now it's to the point where my 17 year old daughter of Taylor Swift comes on one of my uh, mixes, she immediately skips it. And she's a <laughs> fan too, but I think we just yeah. heard it a little bit too much.
0: <laughs> I got you. Yeah, it's amazing with Spotify. I use Spotify. Well, you can just yep. explore, like, yeah, your point. Like, I want to go back to what I was in college or growing up, yep. sort of thing. I've seen Joan Jett twice in concert, and she puts on a great. Yep. Uh, yeah. Show and maybe you have to, but uh, yeah. that's awesome. I can't wait for music to open back up. I used to see a bunch yeah. of outdoor festivals too, and we're starting to get them here in Richmond. Some socially distanced, you know, kind of fenced in yeah. of shows, but it's coming back around.
1: So. yeah I'm, I'm, there's a lot of the local philly um the smaller venues are starting to put shows out in september and october and so i'm like oh man am i really going to get to go see something you know and i'm not talking stadium shows i'm talking like the yeah. Fillmore's and the you know yeah. living art centers and those those places that bring in the great great new music um so
0: well awesome well thanks for sharing and i hope we all get to go out and see some music this summer and Jay, i appreciate well, your time and uh, have a great week yeah.
1: Thank you. Take care.
0: Bye. Yeah. Bye-bye.